From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Republicans face an uphill battle as the 2023 legislative session begins today. They find themselves at an historic disadvantage in the face of Democratic dominance. But they're optimistic about moving issues forward. The majority of the Republican caucus is really from outside of the Denver area. It's, it's the rural communities. We still represent, you know, 40 percent of the state and millions of people. We'll discuss topics like the fentanyl epidemic, the water crisis, working with the governor, unifying the party and potential changes to Colorado's red flag gun law. The reason why this is such an important conversation is we have a common interest, all of us, in making our communities safer. At the same time, we have a common interest in protecting rights, constitutional rights. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Today marks the start of the new legislative session. Gun policy, abortion, state spending, those are just a few of the many topics state lawmakers are likely to tackle this year. CPR's Benta Birkeland is at the Capitol right now, waiting for them to gavel in. She joins me now for a sense of what the day and the session is likely to bring. Hi, Benta. Hello, how's it going? Before we get into policy, I just want to know, what is it like down there? Is it a pretty festive event? It is a pretty festive day overall. So it's kind of like the first day of school. Everyone's back at the Capitol returning lawmakers. There's a lot of family and friends visiting at the Capitol. Um, and it's also the day that lawmakers are officially sworn into office. And in the House, nearly half of the lawmakers are new. So this is especially a big moment for them. They'll be standing on the chamber floor with their family and people will be in the galleries watching. And so this is a moment that is the culmination of hard fought political campaigns, so many hours of work and the beginning of a very busy four months of policymaking. So like the first day of school, (laughs) pictures and family. Yeah, sounds that sounds fun Um, before the real party starts. Right. And unlike what we saw last week with the start of the new Congress, you don't foresee any battles over leadership today, right? Definitely not. First off, Democrats here in Colorado have wide majorities, and that's in both chambers. So it's easy for the leaders to get the support that they need. And in fact, the caucuses already selected the leaders last year, and this was after the election, just Mm. a couple days after the election. But the Speaker of the House and the Senate President are officially selected by the full full chamber today. And in the Senate, things are basically staying the same when it comes to leadership. Steve Fenberg, he's from Boulder. He will remain as the Senate president. And then Dominic Moreno of Commerce City is the Senate majority leader. In the House, we have new leaders. There's a new speaker, Julie McCluskey. She's from Dillon, and she previously served on the Joint Budget Committee. And then a new House majority leader, Monica Duran of Wheat Ridge. Now, last week on this show, I spoke with Speaker Julie McCluskey, as you referenced, about the upcoming session. And I asked whether she was worried that the Democratic caucus might find itself divided between members who are extremely progressive and those who are more moderate. And here's what she had to say. 
I think for the first time in the House, we are seeing uh, an incredible, diverse representation of the communities that exist all across this state. And I'm excited to hear fresh new ideas from our first year legislators. And I'm excited to see that diversity of opinion, perspective, that diversity of lived experience um, play out in a very constructive and productive way for our state. Now, productive is what she's anticipating for the session, but are there any potential pitfalls for the Democrats? Well, I don't know if you've heard this expression, but, it, you know, it's be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. <laughs> and so, I mean, I've definitely talked to some outgoing members who don't envy the job she's going to have because it is challenging. I, I, you know, first off, yes, Democrats are thrilled to have the largest House majority in state history. Yes. But that also means there will be a lot of different perspectives. So it's inevitable that Democrats won't always stay united. There's just different philosophies, even among Democrats, on what the party should prioritize and what this huge majority means. I would say on issues like abortion access, I, I do expect them to be unified. It'll also be interesting to see how Republicans play into this and what kind of allegiances members of the GOP may make with Democrats. Now, the flip side of this large Democratic majority is that there is an historically small number of Republicans serving in the legislature. In a few minutes, you'll hear my interview with House Minority Leader Mike Lynch and Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundeen about what they hope to accomplish this year. But when we talked with Senate President Finberg last week, he assured us Republicans will have a role in shaping policy. I think as progressives, as Democrats, if we have these big majorities and we feel that we have a mandate, I think that we also have a responsibility to deliver on that mandate in a way that's going to be durable. And I think the more we can bring Republicans to the table to hear them out, to have them part of conversations, uh, the more likely those policies, when we pass them, will stay on the books for a long time. If we do this in purely a partisan manner, I think eventually the pendulum will turn and they'll get rid of those bills and those laws. Now, Benta, do you think it will work out that way? Lawmakers often like to remind the media and members of the public that the vast majority of bills that they pass that come through every year do have bipartisan support. That's also because a lot of these bills are relatively minor and they're not controversial. But on, on some of the big policy issues that Democrats are talking about wanting to tackle this year, these are not things Republicans support. Things like increasing protections around abortion access, gender transitions, strengthening Colorado's gun laws. There's no getting around fundamental policy differences on social issues and you know, things like criminal justice, budgeting, education. I do, though, believe that Democrats would like to have Republican support on bills. But given the majorities in the legislature this year, it's just not necessary. So we'll have to see how much the majority party is willing to compromise on issues. Also, when they're grappling with, you know, if they can agree amongst themselves. When I did talk to the House Minority Leader, he said he did want to work with Democrats where he could, but also wanted Republicans to be a voice for all of those Coloradans who are conservative. Well, Benson, of course, you're live at the state capitol, and I can tell that uh, with the background that uh, it's a lot going on down there. <laughs> so what are the specific proposals Democrats are talking about in areas like gun policy and abortion? On gun laws, there's talk about expanding who can file a red flag restraining order. And this is the law that allows a judge to... Um, 
bar someone from possessing or buying firearms if they're deemed dangerous for a certain period of time. Then on abortion, Governor Jared Polis issued some executive orders after last year's Supreme Court decision to try to protect medical providers and people who come to Colorado for abortion access. There are some Democratic lawmakers who want to put those policies into state law. Similarly, uh, Brianna Titone, Colorado's first transgender state lawmaker, says she wants to enact similar protections for families who seek gender-affirming care for their children in Colorado. Hmm. What about less hot-button issues that, say, like the state budget? I think that'll also be fascinating to watch this year because all of that federal stimulus money in Colorado during the pandemic um, is not coming to Colorado. So it's been a few years since lawmakers have been in this situation where they've really had to make tough decisions on the budget. And now that that money isn't coming in, the current budget picture is still pretty good, but there are concerns that a recession could be looming. So I think we will see a lot of debate and discussion over how much new spending and ongoing spending lawmakers should approve versus how much they should be playing it safe and getting ready for harder times. Wow. Exciting times. Thank you, Benta. Thanks so much. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland joining us from the state capitol where lawmakers are beginning their annual session today. You may find more reporting from our public affairs team at CPR.org. When we come back, we'll talk to state Republican leaders about their priorities this session. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at CPR.org careers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado Republicans are facing an uphill battle as the 2023 legislative session opens today. They find themselves at an historic disadvantage, outnumbered by more than two to one in the state House of Representatives and also by a big margin in the state Senate. And to top it off, there is a Democratic governor, Jared Polis, who's been elected for a second term. So. What's their strategy to overcome it all? What's topping the Republican agenda and what do they hope to accomplish this session? I headed to the state capitol where I spoke with Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundeen and House Minority Leader Mike Lynch to get some answers. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be with you, Chandra. I'd like to start by asking each of you, what is your top priority this year? For example, a bill or bills that you'd like to see passed. Senator Lundeen, let's start with you. Fair enough. My, uh, my top priority, uh, even though I do have a legislative bill that I do want to talk about a little bit, but my top priority is engaging on the issues that the people of Colorado have been asking us to engage on in a meaningful way for an extended period of time now. That The challenges that the people of Colorado face persists. The reality is life is unaffordable and it's becoming less and less affordable. And it's frightening that there may be a recession on our doorstep. So affordability, just being able to afford life in this beautiful state, 
is an ongoing issue for the people of Colorado. And so that's one of the issues I want to engage on. Another is um, crime. People feel less safe in their communities, in their neighborhoods than they did um, a year or two or three or five ago. The reality is we've got a, a culture of crime that we really need to damp down and we need to come together and resolve that issue, deal with that issue in some meaningful ways. And the third thing that they're really asking for help on is visibility into what's going on in their child's education. Many parents right now are, are concerned that their child was struggling perhaps before the COVID pandemic and coming out of the COVID pandemic, so many parents are desperately concerned that their child has fallen behind and they're looking for flexible and different ways to catch their child up. Tell us about this bill that you want to talk about. You bet. Um, It's got an, I'm not, uh, I don't love the acronym. CDIP is the acronym, C-D-I-P. It's the Career Development Incentive Program. Um, But it's almost, in my mind, a magical way for students who are in high school, maybe early in high school, mid-high school, but beginning to think about what their career might look like. This is actually a grant program that would allow school districts around the state to provide flexibility a different way rather than just, you know, textbooks or screens and time in the classroom. Give students that have a desire to develop skills that will lead them into a meaningful career. They can do it while still in high school. And we've done the program before. This, This bill would bring a little bit more reinforcement to it. It would tune it up a little bit, make sure that, in fact, we're funding and providing resources to those students in areas that will actually lead them to meaningful and positive careers. Underwater basket weaving, not so much. Coding or doing something that leads into the digital economy and tomorrow's economy, much more of that. Representative Lynch, what do you consider your top priorities and what bills are you looking at? Yeah. Um, You know, we've got a big water crisis that's going to be coming our way. Uh, I've got in my district, I've got a municipality that that can't build houses. They they are done until we figure out a a water solution. So uh, these are all issues that aren't uh, overtly partisan. Uh, And that's the part that... uh, that I hope that we can continue to work so far. The, the relationship uh, with the with the majority is is at a point where they they're willing to listen. I, and and I appreciate their openness. And and I've been uh, reassured that that you know the, the majority of the Republican caucus is really from outside of the Denver area. It's it's the rural communities. Um, it's the reason I wear a cowboy hat every day to remind Denver that there's something outside of the the Boulder and Denver counties. And, and and our job is to make sure that those voices that are still there, just because just because we we didn't do as great in the election as we'd like to have, um, we still represent you know 40% of the state and millions of people that have concerns that that are not necessarily heard in um, you know in the urban corridor. Uh, so we have. Um, you know, a number of, of those issues that we are willing to work, work on and, and move forward. Um, bills in, in, you know, one of the big issues that, that is tied to crime and tied to, um, to some of the decay we've seen, quite frankly, in Denver is uh, related back to the drug issues that we've seen in the state. So, uh, you know, we, one of the things that this building is not famous for is for people uh, being able to to look back at stuff they've done in years past and say, you know, we tried something, and and you know, I would say most all legislation comes from a good place. It comes from people uh, in their heart wanting to do something good, um, and when we try those things and they're not successful, we need to 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 
to be big enough to look back and say, you know what, we tried that. That was not the right answer. It's now time to go back and, and revisit some of these measures that we thought we were doing the right thing, uh, but the end result that we got out of it was not, uh, was not the desired result. And, and I think we can see some of that with, with some of the law enforcement issues that we're dealing with and, and some of the drug issues. And, and that has become um, you know, a, a major issue that, that is across the state. And in, in my rural districts, they, they, have, they have fentanyl issues just like we do in downtown Denver. And so, you know, we have to look in, and think smartly about what the state can actually do without stepping on the toes of the mun- municipalities uh, to give them guidance and, and try to turn the tide in the state. So, You both have referenced affordability. Representative Lynch, give me an example of something that is unaffordable now that you think the legislature could help reduce costs for Coloradans. Well, it, believe it or not, the, the, my phone has been ringing off the hook of, about eggs. <laughs> About eggs. Uh, we now have $8 a dozen eggs, which, um, you know, we think, well, that's not that big a deal. If but around, you can get them. If right, you can get them. If you can get them, if they're, if they're even there. Um, and that, that is a result of legislation that, that just now went into effect, saying that all, all the eggs need to be from uh, cage-free environments. And uh, specifically before the holidays, uh, usually the phones are really dead around here, but I was getting multiple calls from constituents saying, what is going on? How did this happen? It was a great opportunity for, for me to dialogue with constituents and say, well, you know, this happened two years ago. And then I got to explain the process and you guys need to get involved. We we, we begged the citizenry to, to come down here and, and give us input. Um, that's one of the one of the quick and easy ones that, that doesn't, I mean, it's not a, a major deal, but I will tell you, I've heard more about that than I have about uh, building costs or green energy uh, uh, initiatives. People care about how much eggs are um, and how, and, and, and a tax of 10 cents a bag on, on bagging up those eggs if they can find them in the store. So um, there's certain things that, you know, it's uh, not only are, are we going to have a, a natural economic cycle that's, that's not going in the right direction, but we have to look back at the things that have come out of this building that have caused, uh, has, have caused pain to the citizenry. Um, and, and, you know, and it seems like eggs are just a little thing, but um, you, you get a bunch of little things and you add them together. Next thing you know, you have a big thing. Um, I will say I did see a meme this week that said the Easter egg hunt is canceled <laughs> because <laughs> the eggs are almost $9 for a dozen. But what what difference could the legislature make on that? Uh, well, they, they could repeal the effectiveness of that bill for two years. Um, it, it took two years for it to kick in and... and not knowing what the economic forecasts were going to be two years from now, um, we can say, well, now's not the right time for us to be uh, jacking up the price of eggs. Senator Lundeen, you also mentioned affordability. Give me an example of something you consider unaffordable that the legislature could help improve and make more affordable for Coloradans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are affordability challenges across so many elements of people's lives. Um, but the biggest challenge most people face, the biggest check they write every month is the rent payment or the mortgage payment. Housing is desperately unaffordable. And we, we say, Republicans and Democrats say, housing affordability is a number one priority for us. But the first rule in legislating should be the first rule in medical science, and that is first do no harm. Last year, the Colorado General Assembly passed House Bill 22-1362. And that bill, um, as 
analyzed by the nonpartisan Common Sense Institute, CSI, says that over time, it will raise the cost of a house by $42,000 per dwelling. So the General Assembly last year, under Democrat control, pushed through a bill that will make houses, dwellings in the future, $42,000 per home more expensive. Now, it's a priority discussion. We need to determine what is our number one priority. I think making housing affordable and making life affordable for the people of Colorado is the number one priority. The reality is the reason that that particular bill is going to increase the cost of housing is it gives the Colorado Energy Office the ability to write building codes, essentially, model codes that will be used over time. Now, that's in pursuit of electrification of all homes, which is in pursuit of global climate justice, global climate control. Now, the reality is Colorado can have a meaningful impact. We all want to get to sustainable and protected a protected environment. We, we all believe in that. But the reality is when China's bringing on a gigawatt of coal-fired power every week and we are choosing policies here in the state of Colorado that make each home that will be built $42,000 more expensive, we're on the wrong side of the making life more affordable conversation. So I think we just need to get our priorities in alignment. We need to say, yes, saving the planet is important, but that's a global discussion. Making housing affordable in Colorado is a Colorado discussion. Let's not do things that make housing less affordable instead of more affordable, because it will affect. Paul Lundeen is the minority leader in the state Senate. Mike Lynch is the House minority leader. We spoke at the state capitol on Wednesday ahead of the start of the new legislative session, which starts today. One point of clarification. Senator Lundeen said after the passage of House Bill 22-1362 that an analysis by the Common Sense Institute indicated that new housing costs would increase by about $42,000. The Institute's report estimated the housing costs would actually go up by somewhere between $6,400 to $22,300. The new law calls for converting all homes in the state to use electricity for cooking, space and water heating, and electric vehicle charging. When we come back, I ask the state Republican leadership about the fentanyl epidemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing. But they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for season two, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. Let's get back to my conversation at the state capitol with Republican leadership. Paul Lundeen is the Senate Minority Leader, and Mike Lynch is the House Minority Leader. We spoke on Wednesday ahead of today's opening session of the state legislature. Representative Lynch, you referenced fentanyl earlier. Colorado has one of the highest death rates in the country from fentanyl. The legislature has fought over this for the last two years. In 2019, the penalties for fentanyl possession were reduced. Anything up to four grams was a misdemeanor. 
that was tightened last year to make possession of one to four grams a felony. Do you see the need to tighten that further? Well, that was my bill. So I know more about this than we have time to discuss today. But, um, and it was my bill up until the second reading when I got off of the bill. And the reason I got off the bill was for the fact that we did not bring that down to zero. There should be zero tolerance for a poison. I don't call it a drug. It's not, it's not a drug. It, um, it is a poison that has accidentally killed innocent children in this state. Uh, that's all I need to know to say we need to have zero tolerance for that. Um, the measures last year helped. I mean, that, that bill did push the ball forward a little bit, but I will tell you it didn't go far enough, uh, primarily because we need to change our paradigm on how we think about this. Uh, you know, I have all the compassion in the world for those that are addicted, and, and I don't want them to, to fall into a... Uh, into a, into a judicial criminal system that allows them to never get out of that vicious circle uh, that, that goes beyond their addiction. And we can apply those rules to drugs, but we're talking about a poison where, you know, one miscalculation by whoever's mixing that drug in, I guarantee you, not a laboratory, uh, and we now have a lethal dose that will kill folks. Um, so I, I am for us figuring out how to deal with the poison. So we have to change our paradigm on how we look at this and, and, and still have compassion for those that are stuck in that vicious cycle of addiction. Uh, but this is, not, this is not just addiction. This is stuff that's killing people. So uh, I, I would love for us to, to make a statement from this building to say we are serious about the, the loss of life of, of truly innocent uh, kids that may have made one bad decision. And we heard last year testimony from folks that their kid had never done drugs before. They tried this one time. Incredible students, incredible contributors to our society. They make one bad choice and now they're dead. Uh, that changes how we should look at how we deal with this issue. I don't say we, th that we throw out the, the, the measures that we've put in place to, to help those in that vicious addiction cycle, um, but we have to treat it differently. And I think we start by enforcing a zero tolerance for fentanyl in the state. Chandra, I'd, I'd like to jump in on that as well. And I, I want to thank uh, Leader Lynch for his role in shaping and carrying that bill and, and the honor, quite frankly, in getting off the bill when it did not get to where we needed to get. I believe we still need to move forward. The bill, as it was passed and signed into law, spends a significant amount of money on harm, harm reduction. That's, that's good. That's important. We need to do that. We need to help people in crisis. But the piece of the puzzle that it missed is it sets the bar at the wrong level. It moved um, four grams down to one gram and so that zero to one grams is, is now allowed as essentially a, a misdemeanor. It's potentially personal possession. The reality is one gram of fentanyl is enough to kill 1,500 people. That is clearly not for personal use. Anything that is that lethal, that is that powerful, it, we need to change the level. And, and I argue for zero, zero tolerance, zero grams on this particular poison. And I like the, the phrasing that uh, Leader Lynch is using to, to describe it. We, we do need to revisit that. I do not believe one gram is the right place to leave that bar because one gram, 1,500 dead people, 
that's that's not acceptable as the policy of Colorado. I think it's fair to say that Democratic Governor Jared Polis has been more conservative than the progressive wing of his party. He's put the brakes on some legislation. Have either of you talked to the governor recently, and do you see some areas where you may be allies? Yes, yesterday. Um, and there are always places where we can find common ground. Um, one of the, the, the desires, one of the holy grails, one of the outcomes that is sought constantly in this building is um, bipartisan policy, bipartisan legislation. Now, sometimes by virtue of getting an individual's name on a bill, it gets labeled bipartisan. The reality is there should be a different bar. The bar we should be achieving or seeking is bipartisan policy, meaning it has principles that are um, freedom and opportunity principles, and it has principles that are government uh, control and collective in, it, in the nature. It should bring out of the best of both traditions, the, the freedom and opportunity traditions of the Republican Party and the government through thoughtful and meaningful individuals bringing safety and order to society. So I think we need to draw out of both of those traditions to truly develop things that are bipartisan. Now, one of the things, uh, the conversation we had yesterday was around budget. There are a number of budget issues. I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the uh, career development incentive program, um, grant program that I'm going to run. I am already in conversation with the governor about using part of their budget to fund at least part of that effort to give high school students greater opportunities for alternative and flexibility, maybe seeking um, uh, career and technical education late in their high school career and so forth. So another area is, and this is a, a Representative Lynch mentioned this earlier, we've got a, a water crisis today in Colorado and it's going to get bigger and bigger and our throats are going to become more and more parched metaphorically and actually over time. One of the areas of commonality, the governor has asked for some money in his budget, I think it was $33 million to leverage access to about $300 million of federal dollars that we then can use to lean into the Colorado Water Plan funding that and doing work on water. So there are places where we can and will be able to work together and absolutely we'll pursue those um, with alacrity. We will dive into those as quickly as we can. Representative Lynch, what are your thoughts on that? I haven't worked with the governor as much as uh, Leader Lundeen. Um, I will say that, uh, the encouraging parts of uh, the governor are that he comes from a business background, which uh, we don't see that a whole lot uh, in government, honestly. Uh, and and so he approaches things, I believe, in a, in a thoughtful uh, manner and uh, I'm encouraged by his uh, attention to water as well. That is uh, that is an area, especially in my district and uh, my part of the world, and and the agricultural interests that that I represent. Um, and he he understands that that importance. Um, I, I'm, I was encouraged yesterday when he acknowledged that uh, severance tax that's coming from drilling, that is that has somewhat been stifled in my part of the world. Uh, that he acknowledges that that contributes to the to the economy, and and I hope we can uh, continue those conversations to to let more of that activity occur in the area where I come from, where it's been decimated, where uh, the oil oil drilling and the, uh, basically the oil and gas industry has been decimated by some of the policies that have come out of here. Uh, I'm hopeful that, uh, that especially when we have uh, Suncor shutting down and we're starting to see uh, certain assets and resources uh, go away that are going to impact 
individuals more than eggs because I think uh, gas is, is, is just as important. Uh, I am encouraged that the governor is acknowledging that and, and trying to do some measures that will help us uh, get out of the, the bind of, of the ridiculous gas prices that we're experiencing right now. Let's talk about some of the issues that are likely going to come up in the next few months. We'll start with guns. Since the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs, there have been calls to strengthen the red flag law, which allows family members or law enforcement to request temporary confiscation of guns from people believed to pose a threat. Do you see a need for any changes to the red flag law? Um, This is going to be a really interesting um, and challenging conversation, and the nuances and details of this conversation are very, very meaningful. I haven't seen the proposals yet, so I can't speak directly to them. But the reason why this is such an important conversation is we have a common interest, all of us, in making our communities safer. We want our communities to be as safe as we can possibly cause them to be. At the same time, we have a common interest in protecting rights, constitutional rights, those rights that are enshrined to us as sovereign individuals in this free country. We want to protect those. And so there's going to be a tension. And the question will be, can we find the, the right measure, the right mix the right uh, set of details in this very nuanced conversation. Um, And so at this point, you know, here we are sitting just before the session comes in. It's it's too early to tell. We're going to need to get into um, the legislation to see where that conversation may go. Any suggested changes to the red flag? I won't be bringing changes, but I'm confident that there will be a dialogue and that dialogue needs to balance this pursuit of safety in our communities and protection of the rights of sovereign individuals. Representative Lynch, one proposal we've heard from Democrats is to expand the types of people who could petition the court to remove guns for extreme risk protection orders or ERPOs. That might include, say, school counselors. What are your thoughts on such a change? Well, first off, I want to acknowledge what a horrific event that we just experienced in this state. Um, on, two, on, on two levels, I, I think of an individual who is obviously experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, and also, I will say, uh, laws are only as good as you enforce them. And uh, that was an example. I, we, we've got in this state some of the most strict gun laws that you can find, but laws are only as good as we're willing to in, enforce them. Um, I, I, I think there's not a lot of changes that need to be made other than we need to, we need to if we're going to go down a road of putting these laws in place, we need to ensure that they're enforced um, and, and also address uh, the, the link between these crimes and mental health. Uh, I think we, we have a mental health crisis in this state that's led to, like we talked about earlier, you know, a drug crisis. And, and when, when you mix those two with uh, lethal weapons, uh, you, you end up w- with a bad scenario. Um, so I think if we, if, if we let the law be enforced, we get further down the road than trying to do a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, maybe we didn't do enough. Well, we don't know what enough is if we didn't enforce that law in the first place. Senator Lundin, law enforcement officials in several Colorado counties have resisted using the red flag law. They say, as you've alluded to, it violates the Second Amendment. One place is El Paso County, where the Club Q shooting happened. Do you see the need to change the law to require those counties to participate? 
Um, I don't know that changing uh, changing the law, if if they're saying they they refuse to um, acknowledge and enforce the law, would would be meaningful. I I think the reality is uh, we need to come together as a society. We need to acknowledge that. Uh, the, the tragedies such as the Club Q shooting are something that are just unacceptable to us. We don't want those things to happen and we need to find the balance. And then we all need to come together in agreement that this is the balance. This is the balance that protects the constitutional rights and at the same time gives us the best opportunity to keep our community safe. It's in that moment that in fact, everyone gets on board. We all do that which we believe is the best answer. So it's about finding that policy sweet spot. I mentioned it earlier that it's not bipartisan in nature because a Republican and a Democrat both put their names on it. It's bipartisan in nature because the philosophies and the principles and the desired outcomes of both parties come together and create the policy that then everyone says, yes, that's exactly what we need. That is what we will enforce. That is what will get us to the place we want to get to as a society. Democrats in many ways have the trifecta in that they control the governor's office and both houses of the legislature. What would you say is your best, strongest leverage in getting any of the Republican agenda passed? Representative Lynch? You are correct. They have the trifecta. Uh, and and we still live in a free market where people can look and say, who's in charge? How, where, how did we get here? Um, and I think the you know these things work in cycles, and this is why because uh, because all of that power resides with one party. Uh, I, I think that the the people of Colorado will say maybe we're not hearing enough of that other voice, and maybe that's why we're having some of the issues that we are. Uh, you know, our our best hope is to is to provide an alternative to uh, to to what is what is really lopsided. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, yes, we're we're part of the conversation, but at the end of the day, the decision is not made by us. We uh, have input, but if the situation is not to the liking of the folks of Colorado. Uh, there's really one place to turn for why that is. Republicans are far outnumbered in the legislature now, and Governor Polis beat the Republican candidate for governor by 19 percentage points. Representative Lynch, what do you see as the future of the Republican Party in Colorado, and are you concerned about the party standing here? Well, like I've said before, uh, you know, we've got them exactly where we want them. <laughs> uh, we... Uh, it 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 doesn't it doesn't change the millions of voices that still need to be represented here at at the Capitol, uh, and it also you know doesn't change the issues that we ran on quite frankly, which are affordability and uh, and crime and and education. Those are issues that still need need attention. Uh, the the thing I like about this building and and I like about this process is the fact that it brings in. The, the, the people from all over the state, so we get varied perspectives. I, I, am, I am very excited about the composition of my caucus and the quality of people that are here that are going to be brought into this conversation. Um, and, and I'm also very excited about the openness of the majority to listen to those voices that, that, are, that are here. Um, so um, 
I, I'm not walking around downtrodden because of because of numbers because uh, I believe that that those voices will be heard in this upcoming session and and we'll be able to contribute to uh, to the productive conversation. Some of them uh, are outside of the scope of what my what my caucus cares about and we'll deal with those as we as they come along. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know, there is a way to get good things done in this state, no matter if you're in the majority or the minority. And, and we anticipate uh, doing good things for the people of Colorado with our small but mighty number. Senator Lundine, what are your thoughts on the future of the Republican Party in Colorado? It's a great question. Um, there's an old saying in politics. There's many old sailing, sayings in politics. But the one I'm thinking of right now is in politics, 90 days is a lifetime. Now, I don't think that the political circumstances in Colorado will change in 90 days. I, I believe that uh, we are in a conversation. Quite frankly, our party, my party, the Republican Party, is in a conversation. We are doing soul searching. We are trying to understand what are the principles that we stand for that are most attractive to the people of Colorado, whether registered as a Republican, registered as a Democrat, or registered as unregistered, unaffiliated. What are the elements and the thoughts and the ideas of our party principles that are most attractive to those people. And I think a lot of people in Colorado like the freedom and opportunity elements of who we are as Republicans. Now, sometimes personalities get very, very big in politics. And we've been through a season of some very big personalities, and they have an impact on what the political outcomes look like. But personalities tend to come and go. Principles live on and on. And the principles of freedom opportunity, personal opportunity, yet personal responsibility. I think that resonates inside the heart of every Coloradan, regardless of how they've chosen to affiliate for their political purposes. And that's something that's in the Republican Party that will always be in the Republican Party that will always attract people to who we are. Senator Lundeen, the chair of the state Republican Party, resigned. There's already a big battle to replace her. What are Republicans doing to come together? And in your opinion, what should they be doing more of? I think what we should be doing more of is showing our best face, um, showing, the, as I was just talking about, the, the principles that we hold dear and leaning into those instead of so much into personalities and, and the challenges that come with that. I, th I think that uh, um, we all do better when we seek first to understand someone else before we seek for them to understand us. I think that's part of what we need to be doing as a party and at the, the party apparatus level. We need to be identifying how can we find the best in everyone who wants to participate in the process and come together in a way that attracts even more people into the conversation um, so that we've got a future, you know, because at the end of the day, being in the minority is not fun. You can't control the agenda. You can't drive the agenda. And if you truly believe in your principles, the best way to advance those principles is from the majority, where you can set the agenda, where you can, in fact, define what the outcomes look like. And that is something that I think is attractive. And that's part of what I think will ultimately begin to heal and pull the Republican Party back together, a desire to have the principles that we hold dear, that we know many other Coloradans who maybe didn't vote for us this cycle, also hold, hold dear and, and come back together into a way that we have greater political authority. Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundeen is from Monument. House Minority Leader Mike Lynch is from Wellington. 
We met Wednesday at the state capitol to discuss the legislative session, which begins today. One clarification. Earlier in the conversation, Senator Lundeen said one gram of fentanyl can kill 1,500 people. In 2018, the Drug Enforcement Agency said the actual figure is between three to 500 people. We also spoke with Democratic leadership. You may find both interviews in the Colorado Matters podcast later today at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcast. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. I think there is so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy and moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A special exhibit at the Clifford Still Museum in Denver is fostering a new relationship with tribal communities in the state of Washington. CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane reports. Clifford Still was a major American painter best known as a leader of the abstract expressionist movement. For some, his work using great fields of color may not hint that he had deep relationships with communities and individuals. The current exhibition, You Select, a community-curated exhibition, endeavors to demonstrate that. In 1937, Still co-founded an artist colony in Nespelum, Washington, the homeland of the Coville Confederated Tribes. You know, for years, it was known that Clifford Still was in Nespelum at the agency on the Colville Indian Reservation as part of the art colony. But there really was not, for the longest time, images that were available. Michael Holloman is an associate professor in the Department of Fine Arts at Washington State University in Pullman. He is also a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes. There were other portraits of the different individuals that had sat uh, for the people that painted there, but none of Clifford Still's work was available. After they uh, opened the Clifford Still Museum there in Denver, and these drawings, portraits were revealed from his collections, it was very wonderful, I think, because it placed him there with these individuals. Holloman worked with the museum curators to bring this part of the exhibition to life. The pieces show Still's bond with the community and the people he depicts. And of them, three portraits on display, graphite drawings, prompted a search for the subject's descendants. Clifford Still Museum associate archivist Aaron Schaefer. He worked at Washington State College. He got his master's degree there as well as was an instructor and worked into associate professor level. And he, um, with his colleague, Worth Griffin, went to the reservation um, and co-founded a summer art colony there through Washington State University, or Washington State College at the time. And so here are some, or three individual portraits um, of individuals that he met there at his time on the reservation. 
Bailey Plasek is the associate curator and catalog resume research and project manager for the Clifford Still Museum. So we had a name for each one of these individuals and we presented that to Michael and said, you know, how would we go about getting in touch with these families? What I was able to do, more importantly, was to connect the Clifford Steele Museum with uh, official representatives of the Colville Confederated Tribes. In November, the Clifford Steele Museum hosted a panel discussion titled Critical Communities, Colville Confederated Tribes and the Museum. With Holloman, Plasek and Aaron Schaefer, an associate archivist at the museum, traveled to meet the tribal community. And what was that like, that first meeting? Aaron and I and Michael posted up and we spread out representations and um, reproductions of a lot of the portraits and materials that we had in our collection related to the Colville Confederated Tribes. And then seeing some of their immediate reactions when they would see the faces of their grandparents or aunts and uncles or great grandfathers, they I will never forget one of the reactions a woman came in and saw the portrait of her grandfather, and it's actually on view now. And she just immediately broke down. And it made me tear up because it was just such a human emotional response to seeing the face of your grandfather. She just said, it's just his face. I, you know, seeing it, him as a young man. And it was, it was such a touching moment. Holloman says not many people had access to a camera, particularly on the Colville Reservation in the 1930s. So having images of your relatives from that period was something that was pretty remarkable, you know, quite rare for a lot of people. And to have those images that Clifford Still, those uh, really just sensitive, wonderful drawings that were available, I I could see why the reactions uh, that some of the people had uh, when looking at those. Holloman says the Great Depression, World War II, the Korean War, and issues of tribal self-determination were all relatively forgotten. But the drawings, they helped people remember all they and their families had gone through. There is a quote on the wall from one family member when she saw Clifford Still's portrait. I remember my grandpa sitting in his chair as I stood behind him watching our favorite show, Superman. It was one of those old black-and-white TVs with long antennas back then. We lived very modestly but wanted for nothing. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Ahead of Monday's MLK holiday, the Colorado Symphony is hosting a free concert Tuesday night at Betcher Concert Hall. The annual event is a tribute to this year's recipients of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Humanitarian Awards. The awards recognize community leaders who follow the example of peace and equality exemplified by the, the late civil rights leader. The program will also feature special musical guest Pernell Steen and the Five Points Ambassadors. We'll leave you with the sounds of them performing the tune Night Miss Blues, recorded at last year's event. Night Miss Blues, performed by Pernell Steen and the Five Points Ambassadors. They're featured in a free MLK concert with the Colorado Symphony tomorrow. We'll put a link for the tickets in the Colorado Matters podcast at CPR.org. 
Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Fulfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.